0: This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top of the line products at forneyind.com. That's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional Wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel-lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been they had
1: been yeah. around the block a time or two.
0: Wasn't so, the first deal they built? I bet. No,
1: <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had the the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn
0: off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, A.K.A. Dr. Daniel Pierce of U.N.C. Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He
1: wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then, the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the <laughs> boat. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steel when Junior got tangled up in a in a bar fence.
2: <laughs>
0: so check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR History, Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history, presented by Qware, Maintain
2: Excellence. This going to be a hell of a long time before you ever see another checkered flag. I've only <laughs> been in the business barely a year and a half, closing in on two years, and I had never been a crew chief. I would go to work for a team. We'd run a few races, and then the team would fold up and close the doors, and I'd have to move on to something else. I said, Tim, don't have no tires, and he about had to come apart. The day NASCAR and all of us
3: associated in anyway with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston,
0: and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Qware. And welcome to our first episode, our first true episode. First new one. Of a new year.
3: Yeah. How about that?
0: (laughs) 2020. You know, Steve, I was doing good with this whole 2020 thing until I realized that I am now beginning my seventh decade. Okay? I was born in the 60s. 70s 80s 90s 2000s 2010s now i'm in 2020s
3: this is my seventh decade well i won't even tell you how many (laughs) decades i've been around
0: (laughs) and to make matters worse Last week, I told you about my New Year's resolution, how I was going to walk every day. I walked every day last week, okay? Six days out of the seven. Took yesterday off. Took Sunday off. I walked a total of a little more than 14
3: miles. And the result was? I gained a pound. (laughs) 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 Come on, man. That's just not right. No, it is
0: not. Okay. Now, in all seriousness, I can't account for it, though, because last week was Adam and Jesse's birthday. We went to this Brazilian steakhouse, <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse, but they literally keep bringing you all these different kinds of meats. I mean, and it's Parmesan-crusted filet mignon. Don't it's they slide sa- in front? Yeah, so we went to eat at this place, and then I had a piece of birthday cake, so uh, I, I can
3: account for my pound. I was going to say, you lucky you didn't gain more than one pound. <laughs>
0: But, yeah, I walked 14 miles last week and still managed to gain weight. So that is absolutely being a Houston. I am Houston to my core.
3: <laughs> I sat on my fanny and watched football
0: and lost it. <laughs> oh, man. What you? you skinny people just make me mad. <laughs> Steve, this week, in our first interview of the new year, we're coming at people pretty hard right off the bat. Larry McReynolds. And, Steve, we talked for nearly an hour and a half right before Christmas. So this was pretty cool to be able to sit down with him at his shop. We talked for that long, and we never even mentioned Robert Yates, Davey Allison, Ernie Irvin, Richard Childress, Del Earnhardt, Mike Skinner. Didn't even mention those guys. What the heck did you guys talk about? (laughs) We talked about the early years of his career when he was known as Baby Boy <laughs> <laughs> McReynolds. And we actually talked about that. That was actually his nickname, Larry Baby Boy McReynolds. So, And again, Steve, I love doing these interviews because we know Larry McReynolds as the crew chief for Davey Alice. Sure. We know Larry McReynolds as the crew chief for Dale Earnhardt when he won his Daytona 500. We know him as a TV personality today. Correct. However... I did not know that he had ever worked with Mark Martin. I did not know that he had ever worked with Tim Richmond. And I did not know that he had ever worked with David Pearson. Well, I got news for you. I did
3: not know that
0: either. (laughs) Mark has been very open about the struggles that he faced his first couple of years in the Winston Cup division in the
3: early 80s. Basically, had to go home.
0: But 1982, Larry McReynolds is basically his crew chief. Larry did talk about his pretty rough start in the sport and <laughs> how he so often had to hit the road to find another opportunity in the sport. When one team ran out of money, he would have to
3: yeah. <laughs> move on and find something else. Well, you know, perseverance paid off. Well, perseverance
0: paid off, definitely. And I kind of had to laugh because that's a story that a lot of people can yeah. tell. That's a story that I can tell about my early you know, sure. racing career. My first job in racing was with a guy who had won $20,000 in the Virginia State Lottery and decided that he was going to start a racing publication. I went to work for him. I actually lived in Yackinville at that time. I was on it, man. I I had my first full-time job in racing, and I moved from Nashville to North Carolina to Yackinville, North Carolina, and about two weeks after I got here, I stopped getting a paycheck. (laughs) <laughs> and then i moved to virginia beach virginia to work for another small racing publication and about a month later i was back in nashville <laughs> so yeah i could really sympathize with larry Max's early career yeah definitely well, my so.
3: early career was not nearly as shall we say mobile <laughs> <laughs> as you and larry you I, were uh... actually getting a paycheck that's not even fair man well i'll tell you i started work at the martinsville bulletin and when I was at the Bulletin, it was the first time I ever covered a race because the Margin's, of, of course, you had to. Yeah. You had yeah. to. Yeah. And I went out the track the first day, and you talk about a lost soul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, you know everything good came from it.
0: Steve, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the April 14th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. And that's an issue that I actually had to pull out to check on a race that Larry Mack had mentioned. Right. So I figured we'd just go through the rest of the issue. Harry Gant won the event, but it was an engine going bad in Daryl Waltrip's car that yeah. helped make that happen. And there were some bars being thrown back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> between oh, a few re- drivers, oh, and really? of course, you guys were all over those barbs. <laughs> and then there were some parts being confiscated by NASCAR in the old Darlington garage area. The sheriff, Dick Beatty, <laughs> was not going to let anybody get away with Knew anything. He was very, watch.
3: very persistent about <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> and Steve on Patreon, if people could please consider supporting us on Patreon or PayPal, support us, support Qware, support Brian kelb That is what makes this podcast possible. I don't even want to guess how much time you and I have spent on this podcast. So if you can help us out on Patreon, we would truly appreciate it. $5 a month, you will receive one of the commemorative issues that we did with Darlington, plus one classic issue of Winston Cup scene. $10 a month, you'll get the papers and a signed Steve Wade tracks rookie card. (laughs) (laughs) We have have three left.
3: Three left. We we
0: still have three left. So jump on that while they're still around. And then finally, $50 a month, you'll get 10 classic issues of Winston Cup scene. You'll get the commemorative issue of Grand National Scene. And you will get the Scene Bought Podcast jacket. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There are only three in existence right now. There's (laughs) yours and mine. And Eric Quinn has one. So, you know, from QWare, he has one. So $50 a month, I know that's a lot. But if you can help us out, we would truly appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash the podcast. Or if you'd rather do just a one-time show of support for any amount, $5, $100, $500, you can do that at paypal.me slash the podcast. Larry, from what I understand, you got your first job at the cup
2: level when you answered an ad in a NASCAR newsletter. How did that happen? Yeah, I guess it's definitely a classic case of of timing is everything. You know, I was working for a late model team there out of Birmingham. Uh, Bobby Ray Jones was the owner. Mike Alexander was driving it. And we were definitely winning our fair share of races all over the southeast, Birmingham, Nashville. Montgomery, Pensacola, Mobile. But I definitely reached a point in my life. I was, you know, closing in on 21 years old, and I'd been working on these late models all night long, about every night, working at a junkyard during the day to make a living. And I reached a point in my life where, you know, I really want to pursue NASCAR as a way of making a living, but I really didn't know how to go about it. Well, again, I worked at a salvage yard, and, and I, I actually worked on the counter in the salvage yard. I'd been there for several years, and we had a guy that drove the forklift, and he was notorious for pulling the forklift up behind the building and leaving the forks up. And I stayed on him and stayed on him, the man that owned the junkyard said, when you park that forklift, drop the forks down to the ground. And sure enough, this was in like um, June, early July of 1980. Uh, somebody called and wanted a part, and I bailed out the back door to run out to check it, and I centered one of those forks with my forehead Ooh. and um, had a fair amount of stitches. It was, it was pretty bad. So that's what that dent is. <laughs> that's, several dents up there, several dents. Uh, that's why I can't remember things, I think, sometimes. But, you know, they, they made me lay around at home because I think I even had a mild concussion well as well as the gash. And I'd laid around, lived with my mom in an apartment, and I'd read every magazine you could read and watched every soap opera you could watch. And I just happened to be thumbing through. We used to get what we was called a NASCAR newsletter, in a little paper form of a newsletter, four or five pages, came every month. And on the back was always classifieds, and I was thumbing through this particular NASCAR, because we had to join NASCAR by even the late model races we were running. And I flipped it over to the back, and there were the classifieds. And people would sell trailers and engines and looking for race cars. And this one little classified ad caught my eye that said, new uh, Winston Cup team forming Greenville, South Carolina, looking for mechanics and fabricators. Had a phone number. So I, I called the number and thinking, okay, well, I'll probably be one of about 10 million people to call on this. And lo and behold, it was uh, actually a lady that answered the phone. It was Bob Rogers' daughter, Dana Williamson. And we chatted for a little bit, and she actually was uh, knew who I was because we they were running some late bottles with a driver by the name of Don Sprouse, and we, we had raced against them a little bit, so she kind of knew who I was. And we chatted for a little bit, and she kind of told me what their plan was and what they were going to do. They were going to run a few races, um, closing out the 1980 season and then run full-time with this local racer, Don Sprouse, for 81. So she took my number and hung up, and I said, well, that'll be the end of that. Went back to work at the junkyard the following week, and I got home one afternoon, early evening, and, of course, no cell phones back then. We didn't even know what a cell phone was. And my mom said, Larry, she said, a lady called you today and left a phone number uh I think she's from Greenville, South Carolina. And I couldn't get to that telephone fast enough. And I called her and got a voicemail. She called me back, and she said that here's what they wanted to do, that they were actually coming to Birmingham Labor Day weekend. It was always the final race at BIR. BIR could not race past Labor Day because uh, there was high school football that went on in the middle, and they had to put up grandstands. So Labor Day was always the final race of the year, and it was a big race, a 200-lapper. She said they were coming to run that race, and she said, why don't you go back with us to Greenville? Uh, we're going to run Richmond with the cup car in a couple of weeks. You can spend some time up here. You, you can see if you like us. We can see if we like you, and then we'll see where it goes. So I actually worked on the car that Mike was going to drive all week long getting ready for that race. And when they pulled through the gate uh, with their hauler, I walked down there and started helping them. It's the only time that a car that I wasn't working on won the race that I was probably happy because Mike did win the race that night. It's a car I'd worked on all week. <laughs> and I went back to Greenville and um, worked a few weeks. We went to Richmond, and then right after Richmond, they said, you know, we'd, we'd love for you to to stay on with us full time. And uh, so I, I came back to Birmingham and – Got what little bit of belongings I had, which wasn't a lot. I I had a 1971 green Pinto. And, Rick, when I said Oh, you were styling. There has never (laughs) been a green like on this green right here. And I hooked a a U-Haul trailer to the back of it, which actually it started dragging the ground before I even put anything in the trailer. I was an only child. Uh, My mom and dad looked at me Uh and said... This is the craziest thing we've ever seen anybody do. You'll be back in six months. You'll be broke. You'll be hungry. We'll feed you, but we're not going to bail you out of debt. And as much as I always respected any and everything my mom and dad told me, I said, you guys are probably right, but I, I got to go try it. But, you know, Rick, I was, it was one of those deals. I knew I was going to do it. I knew I wanted to try it. If it failed, what did I have to lose? I, yeah. I, I wasn't married. I, you know, I had no ties to Birmingham. I knew it could come back and go to work back in the junkyard, the salvage yard. But I still wanted somebody to give me the real blessing to do this. And I knew Donnie Allison. And, and I called Donnie, and he was out at his late model shop, him and Bo Brady out there working on his late model. And I said, Donnie, can I come out and talk to you for a little bit? And he said, yeah. So I went out there, and I chased him around the Dern late model car, I think, for about two hours, (laughs) and kind of in bits and pieces telling him what I was wanting to do and what I was looking to do. And he stopped dead in his tracks. And Donnie has a way, when he wants to make a point, he he gets his nose about two inches off your nose, and he starts poking you in the chest. And he says, I tell you what, you need to go do it. I highly recommend you go do it. But he said, I'm going to tell you one damn thing. You better find that checkered flag that y'all won a few weeks ago for winning a race out there at Birmingham, because it's going to be a hell of a long time before you ever see another checkered flag. Did he really? And uh, how right that man was. It took <laughs> it took about eight years before <laughs> I saw another one.
0: There is a headline in the September 24th, 1981 issue of Grand National saying that reads, Baby Boy McReynolds has a man's job. <laughs> was that a nickname that somebody actually came up with for you, or was that... An
2: overly imaginative headline writer at it St. It, it was a name that was given to me when when I moved up there and went to work for for Bob and, and his wife Rudy Rogers and his family, uh, they treated me immediately, almost like a family member. And you know, I couldn't get back to Birmingham very often. One, I didn't I couldn't afford it. And two, we were working night and day. And, you know, I'd go over there and have dinner. I remember going over there for Thanksgiving. I did come back home for Christmas between the 80 and 81 season. But it's almost like I became one of their family members. And I think because of Bob having two daughters and not having a son, I almost became the son that he never had. Okay. And it was not long after I went to work for them that somehow, some way he pegged the name Baby Boy on me, and it was one of those names that he threw out there, and it kind of stuck and stuck with me for a while. Uh, but I think a lot had to do just because I was the son that kind of showed up that that Bob never really had.
0: Now, how much would you give me to lose that issue forever?
2: I'm okay. That you know, <laughs> was a long time ago. It was almost 40 years ago, and... Uh, it it, it it the beginning when the article came out I went well I'm very flattered and honored that they've written an article on me and I've just been in the NASCAR uh, for about a year but boy we could have came up with another caption I think <laughs> but it, dude that's the I'm cool with it as I've always said as long as you're talking about me whatever capacity that means you're at least talking about me
0: at that car the 37 car you were serving as a co crew chief.
2: I really was just a crew member. Raymond Kelly was the crew chief. But remember this, Rick. I think the schedule back then may have been 30, 31 races. Uh, and, and that's the schedule we were going to run in, in 1981. We were going to run the full schedule. And in 81, remember, the first race of the year was in Riverside. We went there in, in early, mid-January. Second race of the year was actually the Daytona Speed Weeks. It's the only time in my entire racing career, uh, whether it's with Brandon Racing or, or my racing, that I ever went and didn't qualify for a race. We missed the show at Riverside, and I remember that drive back across the country. We didn't fly. We drove, but we only had three full-time employees, Raymond Kelly, three. who was the Cree Chief, myself, and Bill Miller. And, yeah, Raymond was the crew chief, but you had to be a specialist yeah. at everything yeah. you did. Yeah. Now, we had guys locally that would come in and help us at night. Uh, we had guys, obviously, that went to the track to help us. But when we left that shop, those doors were locked and the lights were off. We had, I there think, weren't no boys there back was, at the There were <laughs> no boys back at the shop. When you think the boys back at the shop, you're thinking the guys at the racetrack, too. Uh, I think we had four race cars. We had a short track car that we'd also can swap over and convert to the road course car. We had a Daytona Talladega car, and we had two intermediate cars, and that's all we had was those four race cars.
0: You got your first crew chief gig, from what I understand, with Mark Martin, about halfway through the 1982 season. How did that come about?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I knew Mark. I, I didn't really know his his mom, Jackie, and she was kind of running the business side of, of Mark, his rookie year in 1982. But we had raced against Mark some in the late model series. In fact, in 1978, uh, the famous late model race still going today called the Snowball Derby in Pensacola, Florida. We won that race with Dave Mater III, and a very close second behind us was Mark Martin. I got a picture still today at home, a fairly good-sized picture of Victory Lane, of course, was on the front straightaway, and Mark Martin is coming into the picture. He's coming to congratulate Dave for, for beating him and winning the race. So we ran the we ran the majority of 1981 the full schedule. We ended up skipping that Texas Riverside Michigan jaunt in June. We yeah. just we were running out of time, we were running out of a lot of things. Also, I think Bob was Bob was well off, but but as we know, if you want to wait, make a small fortune in NASCAR, just bring a large fortune. Just start out with a big one. So exactly. <laughs> so I think that was taking a toll because it was totally self-sponsored. Rogers Leasing Racing was yeah. on that, that yeah. car every year or every race. So we ran the majority of the full schedule, and then we started running the full schedule in 1982, but but some sponsorship came to the table. Uh, Simon Eyes came because Tom Sneva – was going to run a handful of races in that 37 car. And it was, an, it was really a pretty cool deal because Sneva was going to run some of the bigger races, and then Neil Bonnet was driving for the Wood Brothers, and Warner Hodgdon was backing him, and the Wood Brothers just refused to run the full schedule. The only short track they would run was Martinsville. So Bob and Dana put together to run Tom Sneva the bigger races with the Simon Eye sponsorship, and then filling in the holes with Neil Bonnet driving the 37 car. Basically, a a red, white, and blue car. Had that Warner Hodgson look, but he did not put his name on the car. It wow. was a white okay. car with a red roof, roof with some blue striping on it. And number 37. And number 37. I oh, think. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we ran Bristol. I think we may have run Richmond. Only ran a couple races, but... The deal with Sneva and Simon Eyes. it didn't work out, and Sneva went away. Donnie Allison, ironically, ran a couple races. We actually had a really good run going at Talladega in the spring of 82, and the Dern windshield caved in. That's when we ran glass windshields. We still got a top-ten finish, but by the time we got to May, the Coke 600, I think Bob had finally drawn the line in the sand, that the Simonized deal had kind of went away, The Hodgdon deal really wasn't that much money, and I think he just said, I can't do it no more. You know, I've done it for almost a year and a half, and I can't do it. So he kept me on, and he told me, he says, look, you've got a job with Bob Rogers as long as you want, and the biggest thing I need you to do is work with some folks to come in that's going to get our stuff ready for an auction. So I did it. You know, they came in and I inventoried everything, cleaned everything up, got everything ready for the auction. But I'm I'm really starting to wonder, okay, what am I gonna do? I, I didn't I didn't move to Greenville, South Carolina to work for Bob Rogers in his body shop or his rental car business or whatever. I came to the Carolinas to work in NASCAR. But but I still had a job. I agreed to stay till this auction, you know, made it. It was a two day auction. It was somewhere in Late June, early July. So Mark and Jackie Martin, his mom, came to the auction. They were there both days. And about halfway through the second day, Mark kind of cornered me, uh, hands in his pocket, and said, hey, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, Mark. I said, I promised Bob I'd get him through this auction, and then we just see where we're going to go. And he says, well, he said, we might like to talk to you. And he said, why don't you get this auction done and come up to Charlotte and – and let's have a conversation. His shop was right there behind the Goodyear building, uh, right there on the corner, uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway. And so got the auction done. Next week, I went up there and met with him and his mom, and it floored me. It's like they're talking about me coming up and being the crew chief. So (laughs) I'd only been in the business barely a year and a half, closing in on two years, and I had never been a crew chief, but They were having some issues with their current crew chief, and Mark really was the crew chief. Mark made the calls on that car. And another ace in the hole, which was pretty cool, is Herb Nab was working part-time for him. He would go to the racetrack I didn't know that. So really all I would need to do is oversee the preparation of the car at the shop, make sure what Mark wanted to get done got done, make sure what Herb wanted to get done got done, so, yeah, even though I would carry the title of crew chief, there were other call, other guys really making the call. So, you know, I took the job and, and moved to, to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we we finished out the year in 82, and, and, it, and it was a struggle. You know, they were really doing it totally on their own. They had some small sponsorship uh, from Apache Stove, and I remember Jackie coming to me, And with about two or three weeks to go in the season, and she said, Larry, this is going to be it. She said, if we can just get through these final two or three races, we're going to have to close the doors at the end of the season. And I said, I got an idea, Jackie. I said, the last race of the year is Riverside, California. I said, why don't don't you do this? Why don't you rent Mark a ride? You obviously can do that a lot cheaper than we can – Get our car out there. And I said, I'll go with Mark and, and be there with him, for him, whatever. And we'll just do it a more economical way. And she looked at me almost with fire in her eyes. She says, let me tell you something. We set out to do this rookie season and to do this full rookie season, and that's what we're going to do. I said, okay, I'm with you. Let's, let's still try to do it economically. Let's all drive to California. We've got the suburban. We've got the hauler that was almost like a, a camper. Let's let's drive there. So we loaded up the weekend. The, the the weekend before Riverside was an off weekend. We loaded up and we drove across the country. And was all said and done. I was so glad we did it because we actually finished fifth. Uh, and would have finished in the top three and had a flat tire under green. But NASCAR allowed you, I don't know if you remember much about Riverside, if you had a flat tire and you could get down the back stretch, they would let you cut through where you parked the trucks <laughs> to come to pit Road, and you wouldn't have to go around turn nine oh, with a flat okay. tire. Yeah. And that saved us. We stayed on the lead lap and ended up finishing fifth, so oh, I, wow. was, I was glad— that, that she was adamant about doing it because it would have been one thing to go out there and if we'd have finished 20th or 25th or wrecked or blew up, but to end his rookie season with a top five was pretty cool. Over the next
0: few years, you wound up working with Tim Richmond, You worked with Donnie Allison, Neil Bonnet, Butch Lindley, David Pearson. Those were definitely some really heavy hitters, but it must have been all but impossible to build any kind of stability.
2: Well, I was beginning to, to, to really think about what my mom and dad had told me that this <laughs> yeah. is not going to be yeah. a good thing because I was seeing a pattern, Rick. I would go to work for a team, we'd run a few races or run a little spell, and then the team would fold up and close the doors, and I'd have to move on to something else. <laughs> so go back to 81. The final eight to 10 races of 81, somehow, someway, Dana Williamson was a salesman uh, and Bob's daughter. And Tim Richmond was driving for DK Ulrich, and it was Tim's rookie season, and they had the UNO sponsorship, but the UNO deal had dried up, and Mike Alexander had been driving the 37 car. And, and we'd kind of been hit and miss with Mike. I mean, we had some good runs, but we also got into a lot of wrecks, and I, and I think, one, our stuff was not that good, and Mike was trying hard. So they released Mike right near the end of the summer, I want to say with 10 or 12 races to go in 1981. Well, that's about the time that things were going south with Richmond and Uno and DK Ulrich. So Dana had become friends with Tim. Lo and behold, she put a deal together for Tim to run the last eight or 10 races driving that 37 car. And the most amazing thing, Rick, is the 500-miler at Charlotte in October. We almost won that damn race. A handful of laps to go. We're running third. I think Kale's leading. Bobby's running second. The way the pit stops had sequenced out, uh, Kale still had to pit. Bobby still had to pit. We did not have to pit. So Kale peels off in pits. Bobby peels off in pits. We're leading the race. And with less than 20 laps to go, That engine blew up and scattered from turn four to (laughs) back back to about turn three, and it was just simply a a the the boat that hosed the pulley on the front of the crankshaft had broke off, and the pulley finally fell off and lost oil pressure and blew it up. So I had a relationship with Tim Richmond. So when Mark folded up at the end of '82, had no idea what to do. I, I went up and talked to actually talked to Richard Petty at Petty Enterprises. I talked to some other teams. Well, Tim called me and said, hey, what are you going to do next year? I hear Mark Martin's deal folded up. I said, yeah, it did, Tim. I said, I have no idea. He said, you know, I'm going to drive for Raymond Beadle. It's a new race team. They've acquired uh, all of the assets from M.C. Anderson. He said they're moving all the stuff up from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, They've got a shop over there in the old Joel Halpern shop um, over there, kind of near Derrida Road, somewhere in that area. And he said, I'd love for you, Tim Brewer's going to be the crew chief. Why don't you come talk to Tim? I said, well, okay, I'm going home for Christmas. If you'll tell Tim that I'll reach out to him as soon as I get back, then, you know, I'll come talk to him. So sure enough, when I got back, I went and talked to Tim, and uh, they hired me. Um, And I was basically going to drive the truck, Uh, tire specialist and just general mechanic around the shop. But I knew something was not good almost from the beginning because one of my first jobs was to take the hauler and go to Savannah, Georgia and pick up stuff that they had bought from, from MC Anderson. Well, I drove half the night, got down there early in the morning, waited on them to open up. We we loaded that tractor and trailer. Harold Elliott was going to be the engine builder. Harold was down there. We loaded all this stuff up in the hauler, worked all day long. And I get my hands washed and cleaned up, and I'm ready to climb in the hauler to head back to Charlotte with this load of stuff. And here comes this executive out of MC's office and said, you're not going anywhere with this load of stuff. We've not gotten a check on it yet. Oh, so I said, okay. So I called, <laughs> I called Brewer, and I said, look, here's the deal. I'm down here. The truck's loaded. The haulers loaded. We've got it loaded to the back door. But they won't let me leave because they hadn't been paid. Tim said they should have had a check. I said, well, you got to figure it out. They're not going to let me leave till they've got a check. <laughs> so red flag right there. Yeah. Right. This is big January, time red flag. <laughs> So you know, we, the the season got started. But our paychecks were bouncing And Raymond Beetle was a great guy He was just a horrible businessman Yeah, Our paychecks were bouncing We went to Daytona speed weeks and, and we had not been paid In a couple of three weeks Tim Brewer actually wrote us all Personal checks where we'd have Did some he? money Did he really? We, wow. got, we got no per diem, we hadn't been paid But finally the straw that broke the camel's back Was about race number Four, five, or six Darlington and I couldn't wait to go to Darlington with Tim Richmond. We know how well that guy got yeah, around there. Yeah. So we go to Darlington, and we, we'd had some pretty good runs. I mean, we we hadn't really come close to winning a race, but we were pretty solid right out of the box. But there was a lot of egos there. Tim Brewer, Harold Elliott, Frog Fagan. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of egos oozing out the cracks of that building over there. <laughs> so I just was just, I stayed in my bunker, did my job, yeah. drove that truck, did tires at the racetrack, worked on the cars at the shop. I just stayed staying below. Because really this is the first team I'd been to work for that was a major team with a major sponsor. We had the old Milwaukee Beer sponsorship. So we get to Darlington, parked the hauler. I think we used to check in Darlington back in about Thursday. Parked the hauler, loaded my wheels in my little three cart three wheel wagon and drug them down to Goodyear to get my tires mounted. Well, Thurman Huggins, Huggins Tire. He's standing at the door with his hand held up. <laughs> he said, "You might as well just take those wheels back to your hauler. We have not been paid a single tire Holy bill cow. all year long wow. and we're not mounting the first tire." Okay, here we go. So I take my little wheels back to my hauler. Take your little red gets wagon. There. I said, "Tim, don't have no tires." And he about had to come apart. And finally, I said, okay, here's why we don't have tires. They have not had a single tire bill paid all year long. Brewer goes down there, writes him a personal check enough to satisfy him to mount some some tires for us. And we go out there later on that afternoon sit on the pole. And Did you, Rick? <laughs> we did. <laughs> but, Rick, that race started, and that engine in that car – It disintegrated on about lap four or five, just disintegrated. And all of a sudden Brewer and Harold Elliott are fighting and fussing and frog Fagan. And I went back to the shop and I said, no, Moss, maybe, (laughs) maybe this isn't cut out for me. You know, here I am with a major race team, with a major sponsor. I know we've got an amazing race car driver. I think we maybe can win some races, but this is no good. Our checks are bouncing. People aren't getting paid. People screaming at me because they're not getting paid. And I'm just, I'm just the tire guy, the truck driver. I don't want this. I don't need this. So I went in the first of the week, and I said, Tim, I'm, I'm done. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm done. So ended that deal.
1: Hey, listeners, this is Eric Quinn, General Manager of QWare. We are so proud to partner with Rick and Steve in the Scene Vault podcast in order to bring you these great shows that you're hearing every single week. For over 30 years, the scene was the only place you needed to go to find the NASCAR content and news that you needed and wanted. The most talented writers, the greatest photographers in all sports made the scene the ultimate source for NASCAR information. At QWare, we've taken that same philosophy and applied it to our online maintenance management system. One source. One solution that provides you with all of the information you need to get the job done. At Qware, we know that every building, every campus, every factory, school, shop, museum, healthcare facility, every office, every building, it it all needs to be maintained. If the information your facilities team needs to keep your building up and running isn't at their fingertips, then you're probably losing time and money. Qware allows your maintenance team to access the important information from anywhere in the world with just a push of a button. As proud as we are to help bring you the Scene Vault podcast, we at QWare are just as proud to provide the most simple-to-use, inexpensive cloud maintenance solution on the market today. We would be honored to have you look at QWare and see what we can do for your workplace. Now enjoy the rest of this week's podcast, and when you get a minute, check us out at qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. That's Q-W-A-R-E-C-M-M-S dot forward slash scene. QWare is a product of the CNS companies. QWare. Maintain excellence.
0: So Steve, Larry Mack, (laughs) he answers an ad in the NASCAR newsletter for a team that's looking for a crew member to move to South Carolina. And of course, at that time, Larry Mack's living in Alabama. So that was going to be a big move for him. Right. He actually gets the gig and consider mom and dad. (laughs) McReynolds, larry was their only son and he would be moving to timbuktu (laughs) to follow this crazy dream of his steve they actually told him that he would be back in six months and that he would be not only broke (laughs) but hungry too
3: it would not surprise me
0: (laughs) (laughs) and in their defense they actually did say now if you do need to come back we will of course feed you but you're going to be on your own financially If you make this move, you need to know what the consequences could be. Yeah. So just imagine what that must have been like for him to be making that
3: move. You know, it's got to be very challenging and very daunting. But Larry Mack knew what he wanted to do. Now, give that to him. He knew what he wanted to do. And as we'll learn as we talk to him, he made it all happen. I can't help but
0: wonder what he was going through as he made that drive. To South Carolina. I remember when I moved for good from Nashville to North Carolina. I had been up and down I-40 many, many times going to my grandparents' home in Johnson City. So just past Knoxville, there's a split where I-40 continues on into North Carolina, or you get on to 81 to go to Johnson City. I had been up 81 many, many times going to my grandparents' house. But when I made that turn Going to (laughs) I-40. I was like, man, am I doing the right thing? And sure enough, I went I-40, and here I am today. (laughs) But Steve, then he goes just to see if he can get some glimmer of hope from somebody. He goes to Donnie Allison, who, of course, is one of the Alabama gang. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. To see if he can get a blessing from him. And Donnie says, go for it. This is a move that you need to make. But Donnie is up in his face and poking him in the chest, and he says, you need to go find that checkered flag that y'all won at Birmingham here a little while back because it's going to be a long damn time. (laughs) Before you see another one. Way to go there. Oh, man. That's encouraging. (laughs) Now, how is that for advice from a mentor? What's the toughest piece of advice that you have ever received from a mentor
3: of yours? There have been several, but the most candid piece of advice I think I can remember was said to me more than once. And it was, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a short story. When I got into uh, newspaper work at Martinsville and I had covered the race, and enjoyed it very much and learned a great deal. I got a job in Roanoke later on. And in Roanoke, I got to cover big-time college basketball at the University of Virginia and an actual pro game in the old ABA, American Basketball Association, with the Virginia Squires. <laughs> Here I am watching these two yeah. high-caliber basketball teams play in these packed arenas, and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. So I tell a few people, I want to do this. And that's where I heard, don't do it. <laughs> but I did. Steve, I don't know if you
0: remember, but in 1990, I had set it up to where I could come meet with you and Deb. I was a college graduate, but I did not have a major in journalism. But I did meet with you, and I did meet with Deb. And <laughs> the advice basically was, don't call us. We'll We'll call call you. you. (laughs) And I kept
3: pestering you. I kept pestering you. I remember a race at Bristol. (laughs) Devin and I were in a press box, which, you know, was high above the track. We were looking down to the first turn, (laughs) and down on the wall at the first turn is a guy with a sign that says, Hire Rick. Uh, (laughs) It's you. Who was that guy? I turned to Devin and said, I'll tell you one thing, he is persistent. Or <laughs> off his rocker, it would. <laughs> but Steve,
0: as I mentioned in the intro, I did not know that Larry Mack had ever served as Mark Martin's crew chief. As that first deal with Bob Rogers kind of wound down, Rogers actually asked Larry Mack if he could help out at the auction of the team's equipment. When you're auctioning off equipment, that doesn't bode well for the much <laughs> doesn't bode well for the future of the team. But Larry was kind of wondering what his options were and whether or not he was going to have to go back to Alabama. And Mark and Jackie Martin showed up at the auction, and Jackie was Mark's mom. And they offered Larry the job as, quote, unquote, crew chief. Now, he had been in the sport for less than two years, but he had a couple of things working in his favor. First, Mark was actually kind of already serving as the crew chief because he was making the calls on pit stops and what they were going to do and all that. And then second, Herb Knapp was working for the team part-time and going to the races with them. So that's another thing. I didn't know that Herb Knapp had been involved in this.
3: To have Herb Knapp, the longtime crew chief, who knew all the tricks of the trade and worked many years with Junior Johnson, to have him in your corner is great. Oh, absolutely. Now, that deal folds (laughs) (laughs) at the
0: end of the 1982 season, and he calls one person kind of networks as you have to do in this sport. And he goes to work as a tire specialist, mechanic, and truck driver for the new Blue Max racing team. Right. And driver Tim Richmond. So that's where Tim Richmond
3: comes into the picture.
0: And again, I had no idea that he had ever worked with Tim.
3: Yeah, the Blue Max team was owned by Raymond Beatles. Raymond Beatles. Well known drag racer yes. whose drag racing team was also named Blue Max. Well, one of
0: Larry Mack's first assignments was to go down to Savannah, Georgia to pick up a bunch of stuff that Raymond Beetle had apparently bought from M.C. Anderson.
3: Why do you say apparently?
0: <laughs> Larry Mack drove basically all night, got to the shop, loaded everything up, and then here comes some guy running out of the office and said, hey, hey wait a second, wait a second. Uh, we're, you're not going anywhere until we get some money. <laughs>
3: <laughs> not and, an auspicious start.
0: And the guy said that he had not received any money for this deal. The season started, and their paychecks were bouncing. And Tim Brewer, who was the crew chief, Steve, he actually wrote the crew personal checks yeah. so they'd at least have some money. Right. So that's pretty impressive that Very he was willing to do that. Very thing for him that. to do. So the team goes to Darlington. Larry Mack takes his little cart of wheels to get some tires mounted, and Thurman Huggins, who is the owner of Huggins right. Tire, the Goodyear distributor, is standing there at the entrance, <laughs> and he won't even let Larry in the building
3: <laughs> until until he gets some money. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, it should be worth noting this is a new team. Yes, with an established drag racer as the owner, you would think right. That they would have some kind of financial foundation and a sponsor, exactly in old Milwaukee. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Where is the money going? I don't know that, but Tim I don't either.
0: <laughs> Tim Brewer again goes down to the Goodyear Building and writes another personal check so the team can get some tires.
3: Brewer is doing what a good crew chief should do if he has the capability, yeah, to hold the team together. You must have them working together, and you're not going to do that if it's not getting paid.
0: I think it's interesting that after that inauspicious beginning to the weekend, Tim Richmond goes out, and he sits on the pole with a track record. Right. Speed and qualifying. But but <laughs> the engine blows completely apart <laughs> before Tim ever completed a single lap, Steve. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to blow an engine, you know, past the halfway point or whatever. It blows before he even gets back
3: around. You got no money. You put together the team with spit and bail wire, shall we say. <laughs> then your driver brings up everybody's spirits by winning the pole with a record yes. speed. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that has got to be uplifted. And then not a lap into the race, everything goes up in smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Just shooting that
0: dream down. Can you imagine the
3: feeling (laughs) that that team had?
0: April 14th, 1983, Grand National Scene. Not only did Tim Richmond's engine explode, he went down to the apron, but I guess his speed or whatever, he shot back up on the track, and that triggered an accident that also involved Terry Labonte, Benny Parsons, Dave Marcus, Buddy Baker, Dale Earnhardt. And Bill Elliott. And this is, again, first lap of the race. And
3: taking out some studs at that. Yes,
0: he did. And, of course, that did not do anything at all for that team's morale. Tim Brewer and Harold Elliott are evidently getting into it. I guess pointing fingers whatever. Frog Fagan, who is on that team, he's in on it. And Larry basically said that that was it for him. He went to the shop the next day after the race, and
3: he quit. Well, can you blame him? No, uh, you know, uh,
0: to be that young, I'm sure at that time he probably still had stars in his eyes. Sure, uh, and it, he was just looking to have a good time in the sport. Right, this was something that he had enjoyed back in Birmingham. This is
3: certainly not a good time. No,
0: he goes back, and for whatever reason, that team was plagued by financial problems right from the very start.
3: Yeah, but interestingly, Tim Richmond did win a race that year. He did. At Pocono. Yes. And the team lasted through 1990. Yes. And actually won several races with Rusty Wallace. And the 1989 Winston Cup Championship. Right. So there was a lot of good things that happened to the Blue Max team, but how they managed that after this start (laughs) (laughs) is a miracle.
0: Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, Brian is going to be stepping up to the plate on a project that we've got in
3: the works. Oh, is he really? Yes. yes. Brian's
0: on point with uh-huh. us and he is helping us out. And I truly do appreciate that. So do check out his inventory. You'll,
3: you'll T-shirts, be T-shirts, <laughs>
0: jackets, be whatever your little heart desires, he more than likely has in any number of different drivers. So check Brian out on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the April 14th, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene, Uh, other than the first lap melee that was triggered by Tim Richmond's blown engine... (laughs) The lead couple of paragraphs on a sidebar that you wrote with Jack Flowers. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. When it's mating season... The young lines become restless. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it may not be mating season for Ricky Rudd and Mark Martin. i got to hope not. On the NASCAR Winston Cup circuit. But both are young lines and both are
3: restless. I do not claim ownership of any of that.
0: <laughs> it may not be mating season for Ricky Rudd and Mark Martin. Okay. Just let
3: that
1: one okay. settle. up. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay. Let's see. (laughs) Mark Martin did finish third, the last car on the lead lap, while Ricky was a lap back (laughs) in fourth place. And they were not exactly happy with each other after the race. According to this sidebar, Mark Martin said, after that last caution flag, I tried to get Rudd to move over and let me get by, but he wouldn't. He might have thought we were racing for position, but we weren't. He was a lap down. I was on the same lap as the leaders. A couple of laps went by under the green, and he still wouldn't let me get by. So I tagged him in the rear end. It took a chunk out of the front of my car. (laughs) He still wouldn't let me get by. That
3: has a tendency to make somebody mad (laughs) when you won't move out of the way. Uh,
0: Yeah, well, to which Ricky replied, just tell Mark that payback is hell. You can tell them, or I'll tell Mark and Harrington who was Robert Booby Harrington, Mark's crew chief, on his J.D. stacy owned team myself. If they'll think back a couple of weeks ago to what happened, they'll know what I'm talking about. Besides, I had been watching Mark run most of the day, and I knew he wasn't running strong enough to catch up to the leader's and be a factor. Now that's not only sticking the knife in; that's okay.
3: kind of twisting right. it a little bit. Right. Said, <laughs> so "I'm not gonna let him back because he ain't passing up there up there anyway." <laughs> Ooh wee. Well, Steve, here is another little detail
0: that we would never have remembered had it not been for Grand National Scene. Ricky Rudd wasn't the only bullet that Mark Martin dodged that weekend. During post-race inspection, his engine was measured at 358 point. One two four cubic inches. No, no, and that's a no no. Yeah, not even, by much. But even no, if no. it's .124, yeah, that's one two four too much. <laughs> but Bill Gazaway, who was the Winston Cup director at the time, he said Mark's engine was torn down because we do that to the winner's engine and one of the top ten qualifiers drawn from a hat at the drivers' meeting. We decided to give the engine a twelve-hour cooling down period and then recheck it. Anything over 358 cubic inches is wrong, and if Mark's engine is still too large after the cooling down period, we will have to make a determination as to the penalty. We don't have any set one.
3: Which explains how NASCAR enforced its rules back then. We don't have any set penalty. No. So they pretty much played it by ear according to what they thought the penalty should be which leaves in this one little factor. If you're a driver or a crew chief or even a team owner who has, shall we say, said bad things about NASCAR, (coughs) and your engine is just (laughs) one-tenth too big, (laughs) guess what the punishment's going to be? Well, Very big. Okay. That's so there's a little operate. bit of retribution. Right. Okay. All That's right. how they operate.
0: Uh, well, the engine was re-examined the next day at the Hutcherson Pagan Shops in Charlotte, and it just barely <laughs> just, just barely squeezed by at 357.96 <laughs> cubic inches. So that was pretty close. That That's was on the line. Ask it. <laughs> Now, Steve, I mentioned the illegal parts that were confiscated in the intro, and Pappy actually filed a story for Grand National Scene. Tom Higgins filed a story about five teams being nailed before the race for having illegal equipment or parts. Three trick fuel dump cans were taken from the teams of Tim Richmond and Harry Gantt who went on to win the race, while two were taken from Neil Bonnet's team. And these teams were fined $500 for each can.
3: That was hefty back then. That
0: was a pretty hefty price back then. That was pretty steep. So these cans evidently had false bottoms, and the real bottoms had valves that fell open when the cans were tilted up to pour gas into the car.
3: Now, you got to admit, that's pretty imaginative.
0: Yeah, so that allowed air to kind of get in and, I guess, push the fuel down into the nozzle a little bit faster. So I don't know. But Dick Beatty, Dick Beatty. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Sergeant. Yes. (laughs) He said in this article that Pappy wrote, he said, we are going to get everyone's attention and the best way to do it is to hit them in the pocketbook. We're not going to have this monkey business and they better start getting that through their heads. I'm sure there are more of those illegal dump cans in the garage area, but after the crewman saw us confiscating the ones we got... They didn't take him out of the trucks. They better not either. (laughs) (laughs) But evidently, these openings allowed teams to dump gas twice as fast as an approved
3: can was. But now the difference is when these guys were caught, then NASCAR now knew what was going on. And the other teams out there knew that NASCAR knew. Yes. They dared not take a chance.
0: Illegal fuel cells were confiscated from the teams of Ricky Rudd and Ron Bouchard that were a half-inch too wide, which would allow teams to actually carry more cubic inches of right, fuel. Right. Of course, the more fuel you carry, the better gas mileage you
3: Absolutely. get. Absolutely. Let me explain a few things. During the early to mid-'80s, uh, Cheating <laughs> reached a fine art in NASCAR. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was a reason for that. And I really don't want to put anybody down here, but NASCAR just did not have the equipment to, or the personnel to keep up with what these teams were doing. Now, they did it slowly but surely, but that's only after, and I credit Dick Betty for this, improvements were made in the inspection process. Most notably, inspectors were hired for more money yeah. and more financial yeah. stability. Therefore, they were much more dedicated to their work. And that started a slow turnaround into what NASCAR was doing in terms of inspecting. It slowly allowed NASCAR to catch up with the teams. Now, when technology came along, like it is today, I don't think there's any doubt NASCAR has the upper hand on the teams. I know that
0: Dick Beatty actually had some of the illegal parts at his home. Uh-huh. I Also, I think this story actually mentioned the fact that some of these illegal parts were on display.
3: Yes. Dick the- Beatty used to do that all the time. Yeah. If he catch an illegal uh, piece of equipment, he would put that out, label it, and put it on a table in yeah. the garage area for everyone to see. Served to two purposes. Uh, it allowed the other team, well, it served a specific purpose. The teams that were trying the same thing could now see that that piece of equipment was right in front of them. They had the same thing. They now knew that Betty knew what it looked like yeah. and that it was illegal. And they, for the most part, just took it out of the car. And that
0: display basically said, "Don't do this." That's right, or else. <laughs> and they, they, and it worked. Also, wasn't there a display at the NMPA Hall of Fame yes. in Darlington yes, uh, some for a of some of these parts? Time. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Now, another question that this story kind of brought up, and it's one that you should be able to speak to, being in the position that you were in as editor at Grand National Scene and also being really good friends with Tom, was there ever an offer made to Tom to bring him on board at Grand National Scene?
3: No. Was there not? No. Really? No, he was was very tickled to be a correspondent. Okay. Okay. But uh, to be very honest with you, uh, we could never match his salary. Okay. Got it the yeah. Charlotte Observer and I don't know that we could have matched his benefits either. Okay. And uh, and Tom was very happy at the Charlotte Observer so we didn't even make an attempt, but he was also very happy for writing for Grand National Scene and Grand National Illustrated for several years. Steve Jeff Bodine had actually
0: kind of dominated the race. He led 7 times for a total of 205 of the races 367 laps, but he had a tire go back on him on lap 3. 53 and he hit the wall and that dropped him out of the race so that handed the lead over to daryl waltrip and he was yeah he had set sail and looked to be in pretty good shape to win the race the last several laps of the race were actually shown on abc the wide world of sports old school the way that so many races had been shown prior to the 1979 daytona 500 but with a couple laps to go Daryl kind of slowed up and Harry Gant passed him. Harry had already won a couple of races by that time, but it appeared that he was going to finish second again, (laughs) again, as he had done so many times before, but he went on to win this race. He said in your race lead, he said with two laps to go, I saw a puff of smoke come out of Daryl's car. I thought it might be from a tire being rubbed, but then he passed a car in turns three and four and seemed to be under power. Then I saw the smoke again in the first turn and I knew something was wrong. Darrell had that bad luck at the end, and you hate to see something like that happen. I know because I've lost a lot of races the same way. It has happened to most every driver in racing. But Travis Carter, the crew chief, and the team had our car running well enough for me to be up there in second place and take advantage of the good luck we had. You've got to be good enough to be there to win races, and we were. Steve, there was an SOC item in this issue, a scene on the circuit item. The 1983 NCAA Division I Men's Basketball National Championship had been decided the week before on a last-second alley-oop dunk by North Carolina State's Lorenzo Charles. Right. Right. What number did Lorenzo Charles wear?
3: Well, as I recall, 43. 43.
0: (laughs) And there was an item in the SOC section about Richard Petty's reaction to that, and he said, I knew when that man went up with the ball that he'd make the shot. Anytime you've got number 43 (laughs) running up front on the last lap, there's a good chance you're going to win it all. That's what I knew he'd do. Lorenzo just stuffed the ball into the basket. That's the way a number 43 is supposed to drive. I mean, play.
3: <laughs> Memorable basketball game. That was the one when uh, Lorenzo made the stuffed dunk to win the game. The next picture you saw on your TV screen was Jim Valvano. Yes. The NC State coach running around the court looking for somebody to hug.
0: <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the one and only reference to college basketball ever on this podcast. <laughs>
3: Sandy Estep, this one's for you. I'm Kyle Petty, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
0: Steve, this is not an iTunes review, (laughs) but this was a comment on one of the Facebook groups that I had to share because it's just absolutely fantastic. Jeremy Moore said, Rick Houston, I subscribed back in the day And I recently found the Scene Vault podcast. I have listened to every single episode. I set a calendar alert on my phone so when Wednesday and Thursday rolls around, I know there is a new episode dropping. Keep up the great work. It's the only podcast I listen to. How
3: about that? That's great. (laughs) Steve,
0: that's just cool. Yeah. That is just cool that we get that kind of reaction after doing this for... Steve, this is, I guess, the 75th yeah. episode, 76, somewhere in there. So I don't know. This has been a blast. We've got other things coming down the pike that are going to be exciting. And also, the scene vault, the reason why we're doing this whole podcast, that's still out there. And we are still moving in that direction. Correct. We've actually had some discussions. Hopefully, it'll work out. But until it does, we're going to keep trying. Absolutely we